Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley, and today we're presenting a special Easter episode on the theological implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll discuss the significance of the Easter story and the impact it has on our Christian faith. Hey everyone, my name is Nathaniel Williams, and I have the pleasure of working alongside Dr. Keithley here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Not only is this episode special for the Easter season, but we once again have the chance to hear from Dr. Keithley himself. While he usually serves as the host of our conversations today, we're handing him the mic to discuss theological insights from the Easter story alongside Dr. Benjamin Quinn, another special guest today of the Center for Faith and Culture. Dr. Keithley is a senior professor of theology and the Jesse Hendley Chair of Theology at Southeastern. He's also the director of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Dr. Keithley is the author of Salvation and Sovereignty, A Molinist Approach, co-author of 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution, and co-editor of Old Earth or Evolutionary Creation, discussing origins with reasons to believe in biologos. He and his wife Penny have been married since 1980 and currently live in Wake Forest, North Carolina. They have a son and a daughter, both married, and four grandchildren. Dr. Quinn serves as Associate Dean for Institutional Effectiveness and Assistant Professor of Theology and History of Ideas at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the College at Southeastern. He also serves as pastor of Holly Grove Baptist Church in Spring Hope, North Carolina. Benjamin earned his Doctorate of Philosophy and Theology from the University of Bristol in the UK, and he lives with his wife and four children in Youngsville, North Carolina. Dr. Keithley, Dr. Quinn, thank you all for being our guests today on Christ and Culture. Glad to be here. Glad to. Thank you. So if someone's listening to this podcast, they probably already understand the rough details of the Easter story. So today, what we want to do is to kind of dive into the theology of that story, what's going on in the Easter story. So, Dr. Keithley, um, we believe Jesus is fully God, fully man. How do we see that truth played out in the Easter story? If we're going to be saved at all, it's going to have to be by grace. And if salvation is going to be by grace, it is going to have to be God saving us. And if it's God who is saving us, the only way this could happen is if he becomes one of us and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's what we see in the account of the Passion Week culminating in Easter. We have where Jesus dies on our behalf, pays our sin debt, and then is buried. And then on the third day, God demonstrates that he truly is satisfied with his son. Uh, by raising him from the dead, and he is, uh, God justifies him by raising him from the dead, and in so doing, justifies us also, all of us who are united with him by faith. Uh, Dr. Quinn, what does Jesus' death and resurrection reveal about the doctrine of salvation? Yeah, adding to what Dr. Keithley's already said there, I think just a couple of things. One, one thing that comes to mind with that question, fourth century father of the church, St. Athanasius, has this great line in his, his book on the Incarnation where he says, uh, God became man that we might become God. 
Now he doesn't he doesn't mean that he doesn't have like some smuggled in Mormon theology or proto Mormon. That's not what he's talking about. What he what he's making the point about is the incarnation of Jesus. To build on Dr. Keithley's answer, that God became a human being so that we might become like that new Adam, that second Adam. Um, and I think there's so much truth, so much richness there for us to just pause and ponder on for a long time. But um, in addition to that, I think it, it reveals to us God's love for us. No doubt about that. The fact that um, that exactly as Jesus comes to tell us that God so loves that uh, that here I am now to to do what you can't do, and to do so as the just and the justifier, as Dr. Keithley mentioned. In addition, I think it shows us His commitment to His creation. I think it's right for us to emphasize the gospel story as the tip of that spear being towards the human being, but at the same time, it doesn't end with the human being. It's the the curse of sin. Um, spreads across the whole of creation, right? It's, it's, the, um, it's the Christmas song that we sing, that as far as the curse is found, that portion of joy to the world. Well, now at Easter time, we're reminded that the gospel and the work of Christ at the cross and then the resurrection also extends as wide as creation. I think this is part of what we see um, in the resurrection of Jesus is God's commitment not only to his people, but to the whole of creation and the promise to renew that creation. And then thirdly, something that I think about often uh, just God's proactivity, um, and maybe maybe I want to smuggle this in a bit with just the kinds of things I like to talk about with respect to biblical manhood or something. I don't know, but God takes this problem like a bull by the horns, and rather than you know rather than some uh, sort of hey this is not my fault this is your fault you fix it God doubling down in His commitment from Genesis three forward when He owed us nothing for He owed us absolutely nothing. And instead of wiping us out or whatever the options might have been, he says, you know what, you created a massive problem, but I'm going to fix it. And in fact, as the scriptures uh, go on to reveal, he knew it was coming and he had a solution and plan all along. And just God's proactivity in all of that, I think, is, is deeply humbling for the Christian. Dr. Quinn, why this way? Why the death? Why the resurrection? Could there not have been an easier way to accomplish all of this? Well... The moment that someone begins a question with basically why God anything it's above my pay grade, um, so and you didn't put it exactly that way, but I, I always I always want to re- respond with that, you know, despite one's education or years of experience in pastoral ministry or theological training and teaching, um, the why God questions are always beyond us, and I, personally I find great comfort in that because the moment that I feel like I can somehow explain God in terms that everyone can understand, then He's been reduced to something other than God. Why God chose to go about it this way, I don't know. That God chose to go about it this way, first, I firmly believe. And secondly, I think we find it um, most uh, compellingly and also profoundly revealed in the story and the work of Jesus, uh, who is born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, dies on our behalf, as Dr. Keithley mentioned. And then just when you think that the story is over, um, he actually beats the great enemy of death. Why he chooses to do that, I don't know. Um, but I'm very grateful that he did. If you think about it, it's very hard for God to forgive us. Um, I mean, I, sometimes you hear people say, you know, well, you know, God will forgive. He's in the forgiving business. Well, actually, God is in, uh, is in the business of being God. And, and so it is easy to think of God simply forgiving, but you don't, it's hard to imagine him forgiving in a way that is consistent with him being perfectly holy. Mm perfectly just. And so how can it be, as, as Paul says in Romans 3.26, that God is both just 
and the justifier of the ungodly. You can see how he could do one, or you can see how he can do the other. But how can he do both? How can he be just and, and justify the ungodly? And, 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 and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ points to the how he accomplished that. Uh, how necessary was that? Well, it depends on hand, how much you want to follow Anselm or how much you want to follow Abelard. Uh, there, there is a spectrum of, of opinions on the necessity of the death of Christ. I lean more on the Anselmian side. And what does that mean? Well, I mean, I mean that I understand that, I mean, as Jesus said in the Garden Gethsemane, if there's any other way and uh, let this cup pass from me, but yet not my will, but thine be done, the answer seems to be implied, this is the way. And so, uh, you know, in that sense, it does seem to be very necessary. So we're talking about the death. We're talking about his resurrection. There's some time in between those two. Uh, he died on a Friday. He rose on a Sunday. What happened after Jesus' death? And to put it another way, as some people have asked, did Jesus go to hell yeah. uh, during that time? Yeah, it all depends about what you mean by the word hell. Um, Jesus certainly went to the place of the dead. I mean, that, that, that we, we have no doubt about that uh, because the Bible does speak of that. But I suspect what people mean whenever they ask, did Jesus go to hell? They're asking, did Jesus continue to suffer during the three days uh, uh, while he was in the grave? And the answer is no. Uh, Jesus didn't say, uh, I am fish finished. He said, it is finished. And so I think it's very clear that the, the New Testament uh, looks to the cross as the place upon which Jesus experienced uh, the judgment of God on our behalf. So did Jesus go to the place of the dead? However we are to understand the place of the dead, yes. And, and we, we can have, there's a lot of speculations about what that all uh, entails or what that looks like. Uh, so yes, uh, th that happened. Uh, Jesus' spirit continued to exist uh, after he died. I do not believe in soul sleep. Uh, I, I really do believe that there is a continuing self for every human person. And so that Jesus did continue uh, to exist after he died in the place of the dead, but he is the Christ. Uh, he, he is the Son of God. And so uh, he, he, as the scripture seems to indicate uh, that it was, it was a triumphant thing for him to visit the place of the dead because he's, he's coming out of the grave in three days later. Yeah, so what you're saying is if he had gone to hell, it would not have been finished. Yeah, he so, said there is, finished. so there is no continuing experiencing of the judgment of God. And I do know that there are certain Bible teachers, are certain radio teachers and certain TV evangelists who, who, ha who uh, teach that Jesus somehow went to hell and experienced uh, being uh, in the bondage of, of Satan in hell. Well, there's so many things wrong with that. Number one, Lucifer does not control hell. Uh, that's the very that's the very first thing, uh, and second, it do, it diminishes the, our understanding of the work of the cross that teach that Jesus somehow continued to experience the wrath of God uh, after he died on the cross. Very good. It's a it's a super important question that sometimes, and I think it's going to come up even more commonly in evangelical and particularly Baptist churches as we continue to enjoy. I think this revival of 
um, creedal Christianity. And I think it's a right thing for us to recite things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, even in Baptist churches. That may be another podcast as to why that is, but I just think it's a good thing. But in the Apostles' Creed, it, it memorably says Jesus descended into hell and then on the third day he rose again. And for many people, even who grew up listening to Rich Mullins or Third Day, once they realize what they're saying or singing in those memorable songs that are simply the Apostles' Creed put to, um, put to melody, they're going, wait a minute, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it's something that Christians have confessed for a very long time. But exactly as Dr. Keithley said, it doesn't mean that Jesus continued to suffer in hell as though, as though God had somehow lost control and, and Lucifer has to purgatory him for a few days more or something. Is it connected with what Peter talks about, that Jesus preached the gospel to the souls who were in prison? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. There's multiple views on that. Um, but at the end of the day, this is part of our confession. The Bible doesn't, doesn't answer all the questions about what's going on during that time, but that Jesus did descend into the place of the dead, call that hell or something else. Yeah, and I always think it's interesting that the Apostle Peter is the one who talks about that, uh, talking about Jesus uh, descending to the place of the dead and, and, and speaking to them there. And then in that very same book, talk about the Apostle Paul being, you know, writing things that are so hard to understand. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> because true. Right? because yeah. the most difficult, I think one of the most difficult passages to understand in all of the New Testament is what Peter is saying there uh, in those verses. And I, we all scratch our head uh, on what exactly does he mean by that? And so uh, I think that it's, it's all right to, to punt uh, on this one and say, I'm not quite sure what all Peter means right. in this passage. Right. From one uh, bizarre conversation to another, um, if you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, there are some pretty bizarre things that happen. We read about the sky going dark. We read about an earthquake, the veil uh, in the temple being torn in two. Matthew even talks about saints coming back to life. <laughs> Dr. Quinn, what do we make of all of this bizarre stuff? <laughs> More punting here, I'm afraid, Daniel. <laughs> um, well, in, in all seriousness, I remember hearing Dr. Aiken, the president here at Southeastern, say a few years ago on that very passage about the, the saints sort of coming out of the grave for all these, for, for unknown reasons. I remember him saying, uh, I'll never preach on that passage because I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and that plus, so that phenomena plus uh, the earthquake plus the darkening, um, all three of those, just, just to, to put those together for a second, I don't know what's going on. And the, and the biblical authors don't spend a whole lot of time trying to explain what's going on, which always has seemed to me an indication of, one, though we don't really know, we also shouldn't be surprised. Because something takes place in real time and space that never before and never again will happen. Namely, that the Creator went through the crucifixion. And I don't think anyone, any theologian, any physicist, any anybody, regardless of education or stature, even the apostles, I don't think any of them could have anticipated how will the creation respond when the one in and through through whom all things hold together goes through something like a crucifixion. When he dies, how will the creation respond? And, and I've always interpreted those kinds of things as that's the kind of thing that we couldn't have anticipated but we shouldn't be shocked by. What, I don't, what I'm not saying by that is that there's another side to this question. Did God die on the cross? That's, a, that's another question. It's a tricky theological matter. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not diving into that. I'm simply saying when something like Jesus, the eternal Word of God, now made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, when He dies, we shouldn't be surprised when weird things happen in the creation. The only other outlier here of the things that you mentioned is the temple veil being torn. That's something deeply and thoroughly theological that's rather straightforward, I think. This is where 
the Holy of Holies, the center of the Jewish uh, worship space that had only up to that point been, um, been accessible to one person, the high priest, one time a year, only exactly as prescribed in Jewish law. Now that veil is torn, and that's not merely a, a phenomenon in the ways that the others are. This is one where the Lord is now inviting us in. Christ, our high priest, has been the eternal sacrifice once and for all, as Hebrews says, never needing to be sacrificed again. And here the, the invitation issues forth that we too can come into the Holy of Holies. And in fact, as Peter goes on to say, in some sense we are the Holy of Holies, as indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So he, Dr. Quinn is so right whenever he said this is you know, on, on some of the events that are recorded that um, we need to be very uh, careful and, and express with humility that we really don't know exactly what these texts are telling us. Uh, what all their implications are. Um, but we can look at the rest of the New Testament and see that a uh, couple of things, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, these are cosmic events. Uh, these, these, uh, these answer the human condition, but m so much more so. It deals with a universal uh, condition, uh, and, and, and I mean universal in a literal sense. God is redeeming the cosmos. He's saving the world. The universe is being saved by this event. And it also lets us know that the end of the world has begun in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Uh, and so what we see happening at Calvary and at the empty tomb is what is going to happen at the end of the age. What, what will happen at the end of the age? Well, there will be uh, a judgment and a resurrection. And, and that's what we see happening uh, there on, at these events. And you mentioned the, the empty tomb. Let's go there for a minute. Um, each of the gospel accounts give us an account of Jesus' resurrection. And on the surface, as we read them, they seem to vary on some of the specifics. Number of angels, number of women, who were the women there? How do we reconcile what on the surface seem like uh, discrepancies? Yeah, first off, I'm not sure how much work we really need to give to attempting to reconcile. Because there's much more agreement than there is disagreement. I mean, the, the, let's remember the headline, the tomb is empty. That, you know, that, that's the big news. Um, and, and in fact, as most New Testament scholars will point out, that this actually speaks to the fact that we're getting four independent witnesses, uh, not just one witness four times. Um, as uh, one illustration I've heard uh, many times, imagine an auto accident that has occurred. And now they're having a, maybe a lawsuit or something about this. And so one witness comes in who saw it from across the street, and the next witness comes in who saw it through their car, uh, car window, and the next person who saw it in their house. And each of the four witnesses that come in give the same identical, almost word for word, uh, testimony that agrees in every detail. So what would you suspect? if they're saying exactly the same thing, and you'd suspect that there's collusion, that you're not hearing four independent testimonies, but you're hearing one testimony given four times. Um, so New Testament scholars will say, this actually speaks to uh, the, the independence and the veracity of what you're, of what you're looking at, is that there is very, four very strong independent streams of testimony letting us know uh, that this is indeed what was experienced. Now, 
it's not unusual in the gospel records for something to be telescoped where it will it will it will uh, distill it down to there's one person uh, then you read it again in another of the, uh, of the other gospels there, there were actually three people there that's not a contradiction that's simply understanding uh, how the different ways it was presented so I really don't have a problem with the with the fact that some of the the fine details uh, are, are different in fact I, I draw some encouragement and comfort from that letting me know that we really do have distinct witnesses about the tomb being empty and one thing they agree about is that women were the first to visit Jesus after his resurrection Dr. Quinn, why is that significant, that women were the ones who found the empty tomb? It's a fun question because, um, you know, one of the great critiques of many of those who disagree with the Bible uh, will say that things, for example, I remember in one movie I watched a number of years ago, um, one of the lead characters is telling a little boy, you know, Paul hated women. This is sort of this sort of common cultural idea about the Bible. And actually, even in the, uh, the most sensitive of all accounts in the Scripture, this is not just any random story in the Bible. This is the most sensitive and most central portion of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus, the most unbelievable, perhaps, of all the portions. One might be more willing to believe Jesus was born of a virgin than that he rose from the dead, perhaps. And yet, the beginning of that testimony handed first to women. Um, I think there's first an apologetic significance to this, because uh, if Christianity were not true, or, or if, if this portion of Christianity were not true, if those who followed Christ in the first century thought we want to make up a story that Jesus actually rose from the dead uh, in order to galvanize the followers and try to really make something of this. We want to capitalize on our moment to really brand and market this religion and go on with it. If they were going to do that, they would never have given that testimony first to women because the, the uh, testimony of women didn't have the level of credibility as the testimony of men. At least as I understand, in, in the Jewish court, women couldn't testify on their own at all. Uh, there were some other places in Roman context where they might be able to, but not in the Jewish context, as I understand. So I actually think, kind of to Dr. Keithley's point from the previous question, it actually lends itself credibility and veracity to the truth, apologetically, the truth of the resurrection. Um, as well, as I was talking to a colleague about this earlier, you know, if, if you're just doing the work, just sort of the forensic or legal work on any issue of trying to corrob corroborate stories, there's all these kinds of criteria that you might use. And one of them is what's called the criteria of embarrassing details. That one, one way that you can sometimes sort of sniff out a lie is when the kind of stuff that you really don't want to be shared are left out. And there are a number of places like that in the Gospels that we might, we might point to and say things, things like Jesus. There are some places where he wasn't able to do miracles, however you want to interpret that. But that, that could potentially be like an embarrassing detail for Christians. Or this might be another one. That, that women uh, were, were the first ones to the tomb or that women saw Jesus first in his resurrection, that could also be like an embarrassing detail. But they didn't scrub that. They let that be what it was, which just lends itself all the more to kind of the rawness, the genuineness, and the authenticity of the story. So the apologetic side, a second, and very quickly, as I think it actually elevates women in the view of the Bible, um, whereas some might want to, to throw stones at Christians or throw st stones at Scripture, and say, look how it suppresses women or oppresses women in these various ways. And I think actually something like this, this, this sort of minor detail you might, you might see actually seems to elevate women in a subtle sense, but a very real sense. And then thirdly, I'm just thinking out loud about this. So you guys can, Dr. Keithley, you can, you can kick me around on this if you want. But I'm also wondering, this is a theological theme. Go back to Genesis 3 in the garden. 
it's um, in Genesis 2, it, apparently Adam has had to instruct Eve on the kinds of things that get the kind of instructions that God gave to our first parents in the garden. When, when the Lord gives uh, the instructions to Adam, Eve is not there yet. So we have to assume that Adam instructed his wife on, on the kinds of things that God expected of them with respect to be fruitful, multiply, fulfill fill the earth, subdue it, rule over, and so on. Well, in Genesis 3, then we have a woman who, is, um, who believes the testimony or believes the words of the serpent and thereby lend, lends itself to, um, to being deceived and then ultimately to what we call the fall, right? In the resurrection, we see actually the first to, to experience the resurrected Jesus, the first to see and then to believe, and then to experience the resurrected Jesus, and not only to believe it, but then to go back and tell the men who don't believe it right away. You know, Peter's like, I don't believe this. I've got to go see for myself. They actually do believe it. I, I can't help but think there may be some redemptive theological theme relative to women here. Uh, we could probably even drop in as well, um, even at the, uh, the announcement of the birth of Jesus that's to come. Um, Elizabeth believes her husband doesn't. Mary believes Joseph's on the fence, you know. Um, and I'm just curious if there's not something there. I'm, I'm not ready to write a book about it, I'm not ready to preach a full sermon on it, but I think there may be something there that, uh, that we haven't heard much about. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, Dr. Keithley, any, any feedback on that? Any thoughts? No, on that? I, I, think what he, I think what he's saying is exactly right, that uh, it, the way that uh, the role of women are magnified in the resurrection accounts uh, is quite remarkable. As he points out, this is not the way if someone was trying to conjure a story that will be made palatable to the first century audience, this is not the way they would have done it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not they would have the way they would have gone about it. So one thing I've noticed is studying the Gospels uh, and studying the life of Jesus is how often uh, the Gospel writers note how Christ fulfilled a certain prophecy in the Old Testament or fulfilled a certain word that an Old Testament prophet spoke. Where do we see that play out in the Easter story where Christ is fulfilling Old Testament prophecies? Now, we need to understand fulfill in two different ways. Uh, one is, you said specific, and, and I think that, that we see that uh, where all through, through the gospel stories, you know, prophesied that he'd be uh, born of a virgin, or born in Bethlehem, uh, raised as a, as a, uh, in, in Nazareth, uh, and all of those kinds of specific things that we see uh, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, things of that nature. The, the most explicit one that, that, that relates to what you're talking about is Isaiah 53, and, and Dr. Quinn may have more to say about that in just a little bit. But uh, also, there's a second sense, and I think that as Jesus on the day uh, of his resurrection, he's with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says, you know, you know, he, he reprimands them for being slow to believe all that the prophets have uh, said. And he said, beginning at Moses and all the way through, he spoke of those things concerning himself. And I think that the point that's being made there, it isn't just specific proof texts, you know, killer examples, and, 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 and they really are, but Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament. He is the embodiment of the Old Testament and the message of the Old Testament. He is Israel, and you have the promise given to David uh, by, by God in the Davidic covenant uh, that, that God would deal with this one who is to come. 
who would be the who would be the summation and embodiment of the nation of Israel and all of the promises to Israel would be fulfilled and accomplished in him and so in that sense we need to understand how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament also but as you say there are specific prophecies Isaiah 53 did you want to speak to that one it's just one, you know, when we think about, to your question, Nathaniel, you think about what prophecies are, are being fulfilled, what, what echoes of Scripture are, are just being um, rung out so clearly in a moment like this. Isaiah, really two come to mind for me, Isaiah 53. So um, he was crushed uh, for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes or by his wounds we are healed. I just think about that even in, in the context of, you know, when... Um, when Jesus is, is you know, presenting himself, the, the resurrected Jesus, and we have who we typically call the doubting Thomas, who says, I won't believe until I can put my hand in his scars. And it's as if he doesn't realize that actually by putting his hands in his scars, it's those very scars that will heal him, and those very scars that will heal us. Another is, it's the whole section of Psalm 22, 23, 24. Um, we won't read that for sake of time here, but just go read it. And how do you not hear Jesus on the cross how do you not then imagine uh, Christ in, in, the, in the subsequent days? Um, and then how do we not together almost uh, usher in with Christ as the King of glory as we then sort of ascend this hill together with him? Um, it's a beautiful picture, I think, of all that's going on. Remembering as well that when Jesus says, as well as to the apostles, um, that he was, uh, that he was uh, killed according to the scriptures and resurrected according to the scriptures, they're not talking about the New Testament. They're talking about the Old Testament. This was, uh, this was in the original Old Testament scriptures, not merely a new story uh, that was being told by the apostles. That, that's beautiful. That's excellent. You know, thinking about Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 in particular, it feels like the writers were there at the cross. You know, notepads in hand, taking notes and observing what was happening. It's just surreal uh, that God inspired the scriptures in such a way. Where on the cross, we, those things are uh, being fulfilled in Christ. Last question to kind of wrap up our conversation, which has been excellent. Um, Dr. Quinn, why is it important that the resurrection really happened? So this is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus is still in the grave, first of all, we're the most pitiful of all people. And the best you got is to eat, drink, and be merry. It really is that significant. Um, uh, oftentimes on Easter Sunday, we'll start a certain, it doesn't matter what passage I'm preaching from, I'll often ask my congregation this just because it's such a jolting reminder. Um, if, if I were to present to you, if I were to come to you today and just say there is undisputable evidence, just undeniable evidence that we have found the grave and the bones of Jesus, would that change what you're doing on Sunday morning? I remember the first time that I asked that question uh, a decade ago or so to our congregation in the middle of a sermon, and one of our sweet older ladies, she's just shaking her head, no, like, no, I wouldn't change anything. And I'm saying, sweetheart, it changes everything. <laughs> Absolutely changes everything. If there is indisputable proof that Jesus is still in the grave, I'm done. Because uh, if he's still in the grave, then we are hopeless. We're dead in our sin. Um, that offense that we have rendered against God and that sin that we have um, committed against God, that there hasn't yet been a second Adam and maybe never will be a second Adam who can fix what I broke, um, one who can die a death that I deserve. 
and I'm, we're wasting our time here. And I'm just grateful that, um, that that's not the case. That in fact, um, I, I, I do think, it's important to say here, I think that we can't test tube proof this. That in fact, and that, that should be, I think, encouraging to us. I don't, I don't need to be able to test tube proof that Jesus has re- resurrected. I think there's, there's more than enough evidence to believe that in the first place. But at the end of the day, I could pile all that up to the non-believer all, all I want. But at the end of the day, it's, it's the body of Christ in the people of God now that become the proof that's in the pudding. Um, and that's what I, I like to remind my own people at our church or remind our students here. It, would it really be better if I could just give you that sort of scientific and test tube proof? Or do you believe it more because you see people who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus, who now, because of the Spirit of God that indwells us, the same Spirit, Paul tells us, that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power, that same ability to overcome sin, that same ability now to love the unlovable and to love God and love other people as he's called us to, that seems to me actually a much more compelling reason to believe in God, in his son Jesus, in the truth of his resurrection, and then to live a life, this is perhaps the even just, just more... Uh, icing on the cake, live a life that looks forward to uh, the second coming of Christ. This is Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, I believe it's verse 14. So 1 Thessalonians 4, the end of that chapter is the the famous, um, we will meet Jesus in the air, that kind of what to think about those who have already fallen asleep. But before, as Paul's just getting into that, he says, since we believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he says that since we believe that, and then he goes right on into, then we also believe in the glorious return of Jesus. And I just want to pause right there for a second and say, just as confident as we are in his resurrection is how much confidence we can have in his coming again. And that means that we, we, we look forward better as we look behind us. As we remember what Jesus has done looking back, it actually gives us a lot of clarity in how we move forward in the way that we live in his world, the way that we love in his world. And actually remembering that resurrection daily reminds us that, yeah, and he's coming back. And I've got a job to do until he gets back. I like how you said that. That, that That's some great points. Uh, Acts chapter 1, you have where uh, Luke gives us the 40 days after Jesus' resurrection where he spends his time with the disciples. And verse 3 of Acts 1 says, He showed himself alive by many indisputable proofs. And then in verse 4, it says something very interesting. And in fact, different translations have it say it differently. It'll say, and gathering them together are eating with them. The different translations say it differently because it's a very odd little expression. Literally, the text says, while having salt with them. <laughs> and, and what the expression means is the idea of well, how we'd say, you know, well, we were just hanging out over a cup of coffee. Or I, I, was, I was talking with him over breakfast. It has the idea of just spending time, of, as I said, hanging out. And so how, how did the disciples know that Jesus was alive? He didn't just appear to them as he did in the upper room. He did that, or as he did to, with the Emmaus disciples. But he actually dwelled with them, spent time with them, uh, talked and taught uh, not only talked with them, but taught them. And so uh, the one thing you find with the, the original disciples, they knew that they knew that they knew that they knew he was alive, and it completely transformed and changed them. And the fact that Jesus is alive and that he's coming back again, as Dr. Quinn has just said, um, it lets us know that death does not have the final word. Um, if there is no resurrection, 
then then it, it is a dark and it is a dark future indeed, as as the Apostle Paul himself noted. Um, modern science tells us that uh, if they simply project out what the universe is going to do, um, for as long as the universe has had stars, that's just a blip to what the universe will be like in which it will turn into just nothing but uh, entire galaxies will become black holes, the light will go out, and the time in which there was light in the universe will be just a very brief portion of an incredibly long eternity that is black, dark, and dead. And that's the future if, if, if death has the final word. But Christ is risen from the dead. And because he's risen from the dead, so will we also rise from the dead. And so also it means that God will make all things new. Uh, it lets us know that God will invade our darkness and our death and transform uh, that which he has created. So uh, it lets us know that God hasn't given up on us, uh, that he is going to completely finish the job that he has begun. And so that's the message of the resurrection. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Keithley, Dr. Quinn, for this uh, enlightening conversation about the theology of Easter, but also uh, this encouragement that uh, this story with what we're talking about, the story we remember, isn't just about the head, it's about the heart. Uh, Jesus came and died and rose again to save us and, and to extend that forgiveness to us. So thank you all very much. Uh, just for those of you who are listening to Christ and Culture, we're taking Good Friday off. But uh, after that, we've got new episodes every Friday leading into June. So new episodes every Friday, lots of good things coming your way. Can you do us a huge favor? Uh, if you enjoy Christ and Culture, you've been encouraged by it, go to Apple Podcasts and rate us and review us there. That goes a long way to helping us spread the word about, uh, about Christ and Culture. Uh, so thank you for doing that. And we hope you enjoy a worship-filled, Christ-exalting celebration of the resurrection. We'll see you next time.